Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Berend Metz to talk about the global crisis in anesthesia access. Over 5 billion people globally, that's billion with a B, do not have access to safe anesthesia care. And this is causing a huge impact, not only from a human level, but also economically. And Dr. Metz is doing a lot of great work with a number of organizations that I'm really excited to discuss with him today. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Berend Metz. Dr. Metz is Professor and Chair of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at Penn State University College of Medicine here in my home state of PA. He also serves as Director on the Board of the World Federation Societies of Anesthesiologists, as well as being the Chair of the Global Humanitarian Outreach Committee of the ASA. Berend, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited to dig into this topic of global access to anesthesia. So I recently read this article, which you penned at Kevin MD, talking about the statistic that grabbed my eyeballs was 5 billion people globally don't have safe access to anesthesia. So uh, I'm really looking forward to unpacking your experience in the context of global anesthesia. Right. And so, you know, the, the statistics are stark. So uh, the last Lancet Commission, uh, which is a commission that's launched by the Lancet journal proposed the commission to look at the state of anesthesia and surgery around the world in 2010 and their findings were that while there are about four million people that die from infectious disease around the world there are 16 million i.e four times the amount that die from lack of access to surgery and anesthesia This is a a terribly stark um, statistic. And they went on further to say that of the 7 billion people in this world today, 5 billion lack lack access to a successful surgery and anesthesia, which has a huge, huge problem for, of course, those those individuals in, in terms of an increased mortality. And while there are around 300,000 surgeries performed a year, just 6% of those occur in the low and middle income countries where this access problem is. Wow. So tell us a little bit about your background, because I know you've trained in Europe and South Africa, and I'm sure that has contributed to your global perspective. It very much has. I was uh, born in Indonesia of Dutch parents. I'm originally Dutch and uh, my father delivered me of my mother in in a bush hospital in Indonesia. And um, after six weeks, I was on my first plane. And since that, I've traveled to 80 countries, traveled and worked uh, literally all over the world. I grew up in Indonesia, in Singapore, in the West Indies, in England, in Holland. And eventually my parents settled in South Africa, where I trained in medicine and then also uh, started uh, anesthesia. It, I happened upon anesthesia. Okay. Uh, in South Africa, you have to um, be a medical officer before you can specialize. And I thought, well, let me try this anesthesia stuff. And so in a, a very large uh, KwaZulu-Natal hospital, I started anesthesia. And it was just so thrilling and so exciting that I thought this is what I will make my career uh, out of. Got it. Was your father also a physician? 
He was, in fact. Uh, okay. He was also a general physician. And okay. in those days, of course, uh, they did surgery and they gave anesthesia as well with ether. Okay. Um, and so really, I started anesthesia in a, a very rudimentary uh, environment with a finger on the pulse and a blood pressure cuff. And I actually write of many of these histories that I'm about to relate, if asked, in my book, A Waking Up Safer, an Anesthesiologist Record, where I use my life as an example of how anesthesia has actually progressed over the years. And so my first anesthetic was given in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. I was scared stiff as, uh, uh, as I thought, you know, I'm going to kill this patient. I yeah. fortunately <laughs> didn't. And my career took off after that. Got it. Excellent. So we're going to link to that in the show notes. So that book, Waking Up Safer, if you go to anesthesiasuccess.com slash 41, you'll be able to link there to um, Baron's book, Waking Up Safer. Uh, and so this set you on this trajectory of being a, a global citizen, as yes. well as, uh, you know, an expert clinician in anesthesia. Talk about how your perspective, your, your desire to prioritize global access to anesthesia as part of your life's work evolved. So it's almost like going home, if you will uh, understand from, uh, you know, starting off in Indonesia and then starting with very rudimentary anesthetic techniques, because South Africa, like so many low and middle income countries around the world, has basically two tier medical systems. You know, there's the university private practice systems, which are highly functional and modern. And then there's the secondary uh, rural systems, which which is very rudimentary. And that's uh, often where many of the problems do occur in terms of access and in terms of mortality, which is a huge issue. But I'll get to that. So I started in one of those lower access environments. And so, but I was, of course, and trained in, uh, you know, super specialist hospital, Hoodsuskewer Hospital in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. But in that, during my training, I already started volunteering. So we went out with a group uh, to do cleft palate surgery and anesthesia. Of course, you need that for that. In, in Lesotho, which is uh, inbounded by by South Africa borders. And so that's really where I started um, as I was a young resident or registrar, as we call those in South Africa. And then it it, it really progressed as I advanced, of course, and in, in the clinical sense in, in, t in one of the top hospitals in the world, the Columbia University, where I started in, in anesthesia in the States. It, it progressed and I started feeling that I would like to contribute to global health as well as being able to understand how we do it at the top centers in the world. I have a deep understanding and appreciation for how it can be done in less uh, resource environments. And that's yeah. really where I started getting involved. And I got involved with the World Federation Societies of Anesthesiologists. I'm now on the board there uh, for the last 22 years or so, working on various committees, going to various countries, Vietnam, China, going to lecture and, uh, and in other countries, again, uh, providing clinical services. Got it. And would you say, um, were there any, as you look back, especially in those early years, were there any experiences that stand out in your mind where uh, you were maybe helping a patient or working in a, you know, a small clinic or something and saying, this, this experience, this past couple of days has made me realize I want to really put my weight behind and my effort behind building pathways to global anesthesia access? I, I guess it would probably be that first trip to Lesotho when I was really, you know, a young resident and I, I was working, came out of, of course, a university hospital to a less sophisticated environment. Mm -hmm. It was great fun. They flew us out there in a private jet, which was great. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then we got to do a lot of complex surgery, uh, obviously on cranial facial types of surgery, um, cleft palates. And it 
the anesthesia is such an integral part of the success of these patients and you get to see these patients and also you see the effects of your work. Uh, I mean, we see this generally anyway in the first world, but it's almost as if in the developing world, but now we call the low uh, and middle income countries, it's, it's so much more appreciated what you do. And mm -hmm. I think that that probably is part of how I, um, I got into this in even more. It's truly appreciated what we do and, and we can do so much more, you know? So yeah. that's one of the reasons I got into that. Yeah. So you're currently, among your other leadership roles, the chair of the ASA's Global Humanitarian Outreach Committee. As we mentioned right before we jumped on the call here uh, with Dr. Anna Crawford, who's been a past guest of this show, uh, talk a little bit about the initiatives that the ASA, this ASA committee has undertaken to try to expand global access. Well, one of the most important things is that we have done uh, is try to advocate for the global anesthesia crisis that I just uh, witnessed in my previous statements. That's the first thing, um, but it's not enough to just talk about it. The other thing is that you have to put plans and implement plans. And so what we've done is uh, we've focused in a number of different areas. The first is to extend the work of the overseas training program. So the overseas training program was really a program to help build capacity around the world, launched by the ASA, by going to certain countries and, and then helping support the training locally and this has had a storied history since 1991 so the current committee um uh, has was renamed from the overseas training program to the global humanitarian outreach committee and we've continued that work in two countries in guyana and in rwanda now uh, in rwanda dr crawford is in charge of helping support their residency training program in Rwanda. And we've been very successful. So we collaborate with the Canadian Society and the American Society of Anesthesia in building residency training programs in those different countries. In Rwanda, we've been quite successful and that we've been there for approximately eight years. And we now have graduates from that program that are now training their own residents uh, back into the, the system in Rwanda. So that sets up the virtuous cycle of a self-sustaining process of building anesthesia capacity in a particular country. So that's one area we've been involved in. And then the other one uh, we have uh, launched over the last four years is in Guyana, South nice. America. Got it. Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing uh, as part of this committee towards either maintaining current programs or perhaps expanding them to other places? So it's all, always crucial whenever you start any program that you have a very strong local champion and mm -hmm. um, because it all ultimately rests on their shoulders and uh, the momentum that's created has to be sustained by a local champion. Otherwise, it isn't sustainable and it can't grow from there. So mm -hmm. in Guyana, we have Dr. Alex Harvey. So I met Dr. Alex Harvey some years ago uh, when I was involved again on the Global Humanitarian Outreach Committee that just as a foot soldier, not as yeah. a chair, in development of the Lifebox program. So Lifebox, as uh, many of uh, you probably know, is a pulse oximeter program, which basically sought to bridge the gap of operating rooms around the world where there were no pulse oximeters. This was created through the uh, WFSA also through the Harvard Medical School and a few others, the AAGBI of England. And from that came this life box, this mm -hmm. physical box, yellow box, which is a pulse oximeter. 
As part of this program, we distributed uh, Lifebox pulse oximeters around the world, but it had to be, people had to be trained on using this new technology uh, because they hadn't been trained with this. So the ASA GHO committee sent out people to different countries, not only to present uh, individuals with this light box, but also to train them on how to use this pulse oximeter. And so I was in Guyana um, together with an, uh, a few other ASA volunteers, and we were launching this light box program with Alex Harvey. So Alex Harvey was the local champion. She's a Guyanese, English trained anesthesiologist. And she was helping coordinate this life box program for her country. Got it. And how did you and first uh, come in contact with Dr. Harvey? Well, I, I was referred to her because as I said, uh, what we always need to do is find a good local champion, somebody who's interested in helping develop um, a program within their own country. And she is particularly motivated because she wanted to create her own residency training program, which didn't exist or was in a very nascent form. Okay. in Guyana, in Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana. Now, Guyana is a small country, about 800,000 people. Uh, so it's not a big country. I mean, it's a massive country, but very sparsely populated. And so we met, um, we met by, uh, by email, of course, initially, but subsequently uh, we became friends. And when I was there for that first time, she said, you know, I need your help. I want to start a residency program. She had that vision. And so when I was, became the chair of the ASA GHO committee, I decided that I would try and fi figure out a way whether we, uh, how we could potentially uh, build an overseas training program uh, with her in Guyana. And so we have done that. And we now have four successful years behind us with, uh, with graduating residents who are now faculty within that department, training the residents, setting up this virtuous, uh, uh, virtuous cycle again. Awesome. Uh, so I am a finance guy. So I'm hearing all the things you're talking about and thinking, this is really interesting, but I know that flying all over the place and creating, you know, educational programs for young physicians in other countries costs a lot of money. So I'm curious, how are these endeavors funded and with other with what other organizations do you partner to do this? Yes. So the American Society of Anesthesia has been uh, very generous with this and uh, realizing the need, the, the crying need out there and mm -hmm. also realizing that we need to build capacity. We need to train the trainers, basically. And so the American Society of Anesthesia supports both of these two programs, um, as I said, in Rwanda and Guyana. And we do this in collaboration with the Canadian Society. Okay. And so together we fund the support for the volunteers to go out there, to fly there and to stay there. So that's part of the way we, we support that. It's actually very difficult to get donations for programs. I'm, I'm the director of partnerships for the World Federation and on the board. Mm -hmm. And part of my job is to try and, and get the donation support for programs to the World Federation. And it is a, a tall order. It's yeah. uh, very difficult because people do not understand the concept and the importance often of anesthesia, you know, with this hidden speciality. We work quietly behind the scenes. Yeah. And as I just talked about the access and the Lancet Commission, it's only now that people are realizing how important essential surgery and anesthesia is to the world community. Yeah, I would like to translate this for you in, into economic terms because you're an economist. Yeah. So the Lancet Commission uh, reported that, and the commission was basically the 220 commission and was projecting out the lost cost 
that would occur over the next 10 years, 220 to 2030, uh, of not implementing the plans for essential surgical and anesthesia services around the world. Hmm. In, in lost uh, economic costs, in terms of people being disabled, say a club foot that isn't being prepared, or die as a, a C-section uh, that can't occur because there's no surgery and no anesthesia and the patient dies, as $12.3 trillion in lost economic costs across the world. And what it would need is a $3 billion investment to provide 143 million surgeries needed a year hmm. to, to avoid this. So I think I've given you uh, some idea of the scope of the problem and also the potential solution. But I, I'll, I'll talk a lot more about the potential solution, if you wish. Yeah, so I'm so I just want to play that back for a second to make sure I understand. So the the Lancet Commission recommended a three billion with a B dollar investment yes. over the yep. next ten years to create the infrastructure necessary to save. Did you say twelve trillion with a T? Twelve point three trillion dollars of lost economic impact through surgeries that either go wrong or people don't have access to. Well, yes. So, for example, somebody has a, a maimed arm from trauma and it it can't properly be prepared, and so they they are removed from the the workforce yeah uh, that's a good example yeah you know? so these numbers are so compelling i mean if we look at it in investment terms we have this phrase roi return on investment if we could spend three billion to save 12 trillion that sounds like a slam dunk so i'm wondering you know in the context of your role as the director of partnerships with when you have these numbers in your back pocket why do you think it is that it's difficult to raise funds for this kind of work well, you know, because numbers often don't speak to people. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> it's stories that speak to people, that's, you know, and yeah, so that's right. what what we do, we try to do through the World Federation and also the ASA GHO committee. Yeah, um, is is tell stories, success stories of the the many programs that we deliver literally around the world. I, I've just told you about the two programs for the ASA uh, GHO committee. The other one that I just wanted to illustrate as well for that committee is particularly for our residents in, in America. We, we created the Resident International Anesthesia Scholarship over the last four years again. And this uh, is an opportunity competitively to apply for six spots a year for senior residents to go to um, three sites, cure hospital sites around the world, one uh, being in Ethiopia, which is um, where I have been and I can talk uh, cogently about, but there in a pediatric hospital under supervision, we have the opportunity for residents to rotate a month and um, as part of this resident international anesthesia scholarship. It has, it's, it's done extremely well. Uh, we now have already 40 graduates from this program, uh, American residents that have become faculty. And many of them are now on our, or a number of them are now on our GHO committee. I mean, they were inspired often by this program. And that's another way that we built a, a global interest or a particular interest in our own country here in America of uh, residents coming in and volunteering and supporting global health. Yeah. What is the resident experience like as participants in that program? Well, um, the, they tell me that it's great. So it's a pediatric um, orthopedic hospital. I, I've been there. It's a lovely place. Um, and of course, uh, they, they, they collaborate with their um, Ethiopian resident colleagues in the same hospital. So it's a, you know, it's a mutual exchange, which works very well. 
but they also help uh, uh, train nurses there in anesthesia as well. So they are also trainers. They're trained to be trainers. And of course, they're working in uh, less uh, intensively resourced environment. And that is a whole new set of skills that people need to develop. And this is why we always have senior residents go there. Uh, it, I found it that, you know, a junior resident just hasn't got the wherewithal yet to do this. And that's why we um, uh, not only encourage, we mandate that they are senior residents. Got it. So that, you just used a phrase there that I want to key in on, and it's uh, solving problems in under-resourced environments. So you mentioned right. in your Kevin MD article that sometimes yeah. you have these complex problems yeah. uh, where you're resource constrained and yeah. you are sometimes able to, whether it's an administrative issue, a systems issue, or even like a clinical issue, yeah. that you're able to work through, troubleshoot, and solve these problems with a straightforward and simple solution. Yeah. So can you give maybe a couple examples or stories of how that's been so? Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell the story that I said, and, and Kevin MD. So I'm back in Guyana now for um, uh, three years later after the the Lifebox episode that I related, and uh, we have now uh, established this residency training program there that um, Dr. Alex Harvey had envisaged. And I'm in the operating room as a foot soldier teaching mm -hmm. uh, anesthesia residents together with the faculty there, and uh, we were doing a complex uh, kidney transplant in the hospital in Georgetown. And we had the pulse oximeter there now because of course they came from Lifebox, but we didn't have an arterial line, uh, a radial a catheter that we used to monitor the blood pressure critically from second to second. And uh, a patient with a kidney transplant has kidney disease and, and this patient had malignant hypertension, a, a, a blood pressure that can swing greatly and could um, increase the mortality or morbidity from this procedure. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have the arterial line and monitoring device, which is a complex electronic device, in order to measure this accurately. So instead, I put into practice something that I'd learned in the University of Cape Town many years ago, which is to use a saline a thin tube manometer. In essence, what you do is you just have a catheter which you raise above the patient's heart, fill it with saline, inject a little a methylene blue so you can clearly see it, attach a tape measure, and then insert an arterial line in the radial artery and connect this manometer so that you can see the level of the water, which will then show you the blood pressure from second to second, as you would experience with a far more sophisticated electronic device. It works very well. And so we applied this. And, and it's one of those ideas that is what really makes uh, anesthesia work. You know, yeah. we often have to troubleshoot very simple problems or complex problems and have simple solutions for that. It's one of the beauties of anesthesia. So I'm curious, whenever you made that recommendation for the manometer, how long had it been since you had done it previously? Oh, uh, well, I hadn't done it for a very long time. And uh, I have to tell you a story because, you know, you may have heard uh, of uh, the blood pressure hitting the roof. Have you ever heard that term? Well, any anesthesiologist will know about this, but okay. most don't know where it comes from. Well, it comes from these saline manometers. Ah. So the saline manometers would, uh, you know, they'd be colored uh, with this methylene blue. And I tell this story in my book, Waking Up Safer, exactly the same kind of story. And what happens is, um, you know, when the blood pressure shoots up for whatever reason, of course, it shoots out the top of the catheter and hits the ceiling. And so in this ICU that I worked in, you would literally have the blue methylene blue spots all over the ceiling from where the blood pressure had hit the roof. And that's where the, the whole idea comes from. That's so interesting. So I'm not an anesthesiologist, so I haven't heard that phrase specifically, but I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be connecting yeah. these dots. Yeah. 
Um, so you've worked, you know, a long time with a lot of different organizations, a lot of different doctors. Are there any others who are sort of uh, your brothers in arms, so to speak, who are doing good work in this same space that you would want to highlight and maybe tell a few stories about some of the things that they're able to accomplish? Yeah, so I would uh, say, obviously, having worked with the World Federation, I mean, uh, we are, uh, you know, in the business of uniting anesthesiologists around the world. There's about 500,000 of us around the world. And the World Federation is a, a federation of the societies of anesthesia around the world. So there's 130 societies of anesthesia. And so we represent them. The World Federation, of course, is particularly interested in building anesthesia capacity around the world, capacity and safety, mm -hmm. and does this through multitudes of educational programs, as well as publications that champion education. For example, uh, we have created uh, in the order of 50 fellowships around the world. So what are fellowships? Fellowships are training opportunities for individuals from three months to a year. Uh, in an adjacent neighboring country hmm. so that they can return to their or country of origin after having been trained in uh, intensive care, in chronic pain management, in pediatric anesthesia, which is a, a dire need, need around the world because, yeah. you know, as you know, a, a, a pediatric, a child, a particularly a very young child is a much more complex anesthetic to give. And so often we need to enhance people's training in this specialist area. So these programs are literally um, around the world, 50 of them a year, and that we've managed to build anesthesia capacity. So great work gets done through that. Then there's another organization, uh, Health Volunteers Overseas, which I was the anesthesia director for, uh, for four years, um, some 10, 10 years ago. It is a, an, another uh, group that, um, actively seeks volunteers. So this, I think, is very important for your audience. Mm -hmm. Actively seeks volunteers who can help go to about six countries, again, volunteering their, their support, volunteering their anesthesia services and, and their expertise. So this is another very good organization to consider. Excellent. Yeah. So as you're talking about the pediatric anesthesia need, I was thinking, I have a couple friends who were doing some work. There's a training hospital in Kenya with Dr. Mark Newton from Vanderbilt. Yes. And I know they were doing, it sounded like a similar thing. They were there training some, some Kenyan physicians. And there were other, uh, others from the African continent elsewhere that were there as well. And I remember them saying, I think it was Liberia, where there was a couple of pediatric anesthesiologists there. And they were pretty much the only ones in the entire country with, with the pediatric training. And, you know, you said there's 500,000 anesthesiologists in the world. I'm doing the math in my head. I think there's about 55,000 members of the ASA. So Correct. obviously one in thing. the U.S., it's very yep. dense. Yep. And... There's, it's a big world out there. We're 4% of the global population here in the United States. So it sounds like just from sheer number of anesthesiologists lacking elsewhere, that's a, that's a big part of the, the problem. That's here. a very big part of the problem. And let me just pick mm -hmm. up on, on two things there. Firstly, Mark Newton is a fantastic man. Uh, he's also part of the uh, World Federation Society of Anesthesia and also uh, received uh, the Global Humanitarian Outreach Award from the ASA GHO committee, we um, we provide an award once a year uh, to uh, somebody who has made the the largest impact on uh, global health. And Mark Newton received that two years ago. Then, just to give you a comparison, you you said quite rightly the number of anesthesiologists here is in the order of fifty thousand. 
in the United States, and we have a population of this this side of 300 million. Let's use that as an example. Let's, let's move now to Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a population of 80 million people. It has lost count 67 anesthesiologists. Wow. And about 400 nurse anesthetists that are trained through the Black Lion Hospital and where I was talking about, uh, you know, we, we send people to as well. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the problems. The problem is that there aren't enough qualified people to give anesthetics around the world. And so this is what we call capacity building, mm-hmm. you know, uh, step by step by step, setting up programs that allow people to be trained at all types of levels in order that they can give as safe anesthesia as possible. Yeah. Now, there's another very important statistic and trend, which is uh, very concerning. And that is, as the surgeons become um, more trained and more competent in, let's call it, a low, low middle income countries, they are braver about uh, get, doing particularly more complex surgery. Mm. The problem is that often the anesthesia capacity doesn't advance at the same time. And mm. so while we see that surgical mortality is improving, anesthesia mortality is not improving at the same rate. Mm. In other words, there are just not the right um, number of individuals to provide the safe anesthesia, obviously, that the patients deserve. And so that's another critical problem that we have to try and address. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit specifically how this relates to the the OB uh, anesthesia? Because I know childbirth, labor and delivery has its own sort of separate set of considerations. Uh, Talk about the, the, you know, your work in that context. Yeah. So, you know, the biggest concern there, of course, is that you have a mother and a child um, and they're in labor. And so there's two lives to worry about. In many places around the world, the mother might go into something we call obstructed labor. So the baby can't come out. And the only solution we have is a C-section. And if you don't do a C-section, the mother dies from the labor and the baby doesn't, they both die. So a big problem around the world is that the laboring mother does not have access to either surgery and anesthesia because you can't do the surgery without anesthesia. And so they just die. And the, the, the figures are something like 80,000 or more a year dying like this. And that's a, a, probably a low number compared to what's actually happening. So this is a crucial concern. And this is why the Lancet Commission pulls together surgical, obstetric, and anesthesia services needed around the world. So the statistics that I've been quoting you are for surgical, obstetric, and anesthesia uh, requirements around the world. Understood. So there's obviously a lot of work to be done. I'm sure there's yes. probably people listening out there that are thinking, I want to maybe today or maybe tomorrow take a very practical first step to say, I want to do my part as an anesthesiologist or an anesthesia resident or fellow to start to uh, either help in under-resourced areas or develop systems that can be replicated elsewhere so that we can train uh, you know, local physicians to be able to provide these very needed services. Yeah. If you had to give one or two very practical, here's something you can do today, here's a place you can go, here's an organization you can talk to, how would you direct somebody who's interested in that? Well, I think, uh, as I just said, Health Volunteers Overseas is a, a great opportunity to go to Health Volunteers Overseas because they are actively seeking volunteers. Then on our, our GHO website, uh, we have what we call GHO alerts. So. We post on there, and there, I just looked at it yesterday, there's a whole lot of alerts uh, posted there for um, where, where people are critically uh, needed. 
for example, we post on there that we, we need volunteers uh, for our two programs in Rwanda and Guyana. And um, so that's another opportunity. But we keep posting at those sites. Then uh, Operation Smile mm-hmm. and Smile Train, two different organizations, are always seeking volunteers to provide anesthesia, particularly for uh, cleft palates. So that's a- another opportunity. And, and then you can always you can always provide donations uh, to Lifebox or to the World Federation. We have a fund the fellow uh, program. I just told you a little bit about the fellows, and and of course over time you can try and get involved with the World Federation. Of course, with our ASA GHO committee, yeah. um, as you can imagine, our committee is uh, well subscribed, and a lot of people wish to be on it. Yeah, and so we try our very level best to accommodate those those requests. Excellent. So you just threw out a lot of great information. I'm going to make sure we capture all of that in the show notes. So anybody who's interested, anesthesiasuccess.com slash 41. We're going to have links to all these uh, resources that uh, Baron is referencing here and would love to be able to make this as easy as possible for anybody who's wanting to really get involved to do so. Um, Okay, well, I want to wrap things up here, Baron. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, In closing, you are a man with vast experience flying all over the place, training people in a bunch of different countries, um, doing clinical and administrative and systems work all over the globe. So I want to just close with a, a personal story. Take me to a moment when, you know, you're really, you're focused, you're exerting, you're sacrificing a lot. And take me to a moment when things were transpiring in a way where you're able to reflect and say, all the work that I've put in, all the systems that I've been trying to construct, the people with whom I've been collaborating in this moment, I see it working. I see some fruit being born and it's really a beautiful thing to behold yeah you know i see that best in the smile smile of a global scholar mm. who's been um you know to one of our programs so the global scholars programs the asa they come uh, from a, a a different country they're selected they rotate through a, a particular hospital and then after that they come to the asa uh, um, meeting and they talk to me and they say, yeah, I'm inspired and I'm going to go home and I'm going to fix things, you know, and that's when I realized that this is great because I actually had that opportunity when I was in South Africa. I came to the States on a scholarship when I was a young resident. And, you know, the importance of these things is letting individuals see how it can be. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're very good here in the United States. And they get the opportunity to see how it can be. And so they can develop that vision for themselves or for their countries, and they can go back. And when I hear, for example, that one of our volunteers, our American volunteers in, in Guyana is meeting with the Minister of Health in Guyana to help solve their problems, that puts a smile in my, uh, you know, in my face because then I know that we've started to connecting and making a real difference in that country not just through the anesthesia, but for helping structure uh, the efficiency and safety of surgical and anesthesia and obstetric services. So those, those are the, uh, the moments that I, I look forward to. Excellent. Well, Dr. Baron Metz, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.